In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Except for the children. Now, guys, I've never done this, so I'm really counting on all of you to come up right here. Right? Is that what happens? Whoa! Teleportation. All right, so if you're a child, come this way. I got two right here. You're walking. Come on. I'm going to sit with you. Can I sit with you? Is that allowed? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right, so this, is, this isn't going to be too scary at all. Um, have you guys ever read a book called The Chronicles of Narnia? Yes. Right? Who thinks it's awesome? Yes. Exactly. If you don't, I don't even understand what we're talking about. Um, so what I'm going to do this morning is I want to read you guys a part of a story. Who knows what the very last book of The Chronicles of Narnia is called? You almost got it. But your hair is great, so, <laughs> so there's that. It's the last battle. It is. It's the last battle. You're absolutely right. All right, so at the very end, well, first off, parents, do you, do you know this book, The Last Battle? If you don't, you need to read it. It's fantastic. So near the end of the very last book, The Last Battle, the big lion, who knows what the lion's name is? Aslan, right. So Aslan, he's finally taken Narnia back over, and he got it back from, uh, from an imposter. And so you have these two characters, Lucy and a prince called Tyrion. They're walking out through this big, open, beautiful field, and they see something out in the field that's very strange. Right there before them, there's this really small group of dwarves, and they're sitting in a circle. Now, throughout the story, the dwarves had always been very mistrustful of all of the people. And everything that they saw, they didn't really trust it. And now these same dwarves, they're huddled in this field, and they're muttering angrily at each other. As the children get nearer to them, they realize that the dwarves can't even see them. And when they ask where they are, one of the dwarves said, We're in here, you bonehead, in this pitch-black, pokey, smelly little hole of a stable. Horrified, Lucy said, But it isn't dark. Look up. Look around. Can't you see the sky? Can't you see the flowers? Can't you see me? Then, bending down, Lucy scooped up some violets and said, Perhaps if you can't see, you can smell these. But the dwarf, smelling the flowers, flung them back in her face and said, How dare you? For he thought he was smelling stable litter. Lucy was shocked, and she wasn't sure what to do. But then suddenly the earth began to tremble, and the sweet air of the field grew sweeter still, and a brightness flashed behind them. The children turned and guessed who they saw. Aslan. The great lion himself had appeared. They ran to Aslan, and then Lucy, through her tears, asked Aslan this question. Aslan, can you do something for these poor dwarves? Aslan approached the dwarves, huddled in their darkness, and he growled. But the dwarves just thought it was someone in the stable trying to frighten them. So Aslan decided that he would shake his mane, and out of his mane fell choice goblets of water and wine and great food, and a feast was set before the dwarves. And the dwarves grabbed the food and the darkness, greedily consuming it, but they couldn't taste its goodness. One thought he was eating hay, another thought he was eating a rotten turnip, and in one, in one moment they were fighting and quarreling among themselves just as they always had. And as Aslan watched this happen, he turned and he left them in their misery. 
The children were very upset by this. Even the great Aslan could not bring them out of their self-imposed darkness. So Lucy looked at Aslan and said, Can't we help them in some way, Aslan? And Aslan responded and said, Dear child, they will not let us help them. Their prison is only in their minds, and they are so afraid of being taken in that they refuse to be taken out. But come now, children, said Aslan. We have other work to do. And they left the dwarfs alone in their miserable world. Now, here's some questions, okay? Like in school, you know, we raise our hands. Know how to do that? Yep. All right, so we're going to raise our hands. You ready? Where did the dwarves think they were sitting? In a stable, right? A dark, stinky barn. But where were they really sitting? In a field of flowers. Right, in a field of flowers. So they think they're in a dark, stinky barn, but they're in a field of flowers. Did Lucy try to help them? Yes. Yes. How? Get someone in this side. How did Lucy try to help them? Richard? Um, by asking Aslan to help them. You're, you're exactly right. What else did he do? What else did Lucy do? I'm sorry. Um, she tried talking to them. Mm -hmm. What'd she give them to smell? Flowers. Flowers. But did they think they were flowers? No. No. All right. Did Aslan try to help them? Yes. How did Aslan try to help? With a feast. Did they think it was a feast? No. What did they think it was? Mm. You're right. What he said. They thought it was hay, right? And one thought it was a nasty turnip. But did they think it was a beautiful feast? No. No. Um, but did the dwarves want help from Lucy or from Aslan? No. No, they didn't want help. Does Aslan leave the dwarves because he doesn't care about them? No. But do the dwarves seem to care about Aslan? No. No. And this is where the story ends for the dwarves. And what I want you to listen to today as we go through our gospel text is I want you to see if you can pick up a connection. Okay? You got it? Any questions? Good. All right, back to your seat, kids. I have no idea if that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so our gospel text this morning, um, it has some of the most difficult verses, I think, in the entire New Testament. The sheer weight and difficulties of these verses can make even the most seasoned of Christians run for cover. As Deacon Carl was reading the gospel, I, I was carefully watching you guys. I watched your faces to see if you winced when those dreadful verses were read. And let me say this, man, there, there is no shame at all if you wince at these verses. As a matter of fact, if Mark 3, verses 28 and 29 don't give you a cold chill down your spine, then I don't think you're listening to just how sharp and severe the words of Jesus truly are. Just in case you didn't catch it the first go around, then just allow me to repeat for you some of the strongest language Jesus ever uses. Starting at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men in whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Guys, can you recall Jesus saying anything else like this ever? No. Where else does Jesus 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, talk instead about your sins not being forgiven. Where else does Jesus, the grantor of eternal life, instead place such laser focus on eternal sin? There is nowhere else in the entire entire gospel that Jesus warns us against committing a sin which has no forgiveness. Nowhere else do we hear about the possibility that humans can commit a sin which has no atonement. So what in the world is going on here? Why is Jesus saying something so unprecedented? Why is he saying something so harsh? Why is it that an an unforgivable sin exists in the first place? And why didn't Father Chris let me preach Trinity Sunday? I don't understand. This morning, I do want to try and make sense of these verses with you. I want to show you that these verses aren't nearly out of place as they may first seem. And I want to do that by doing three main things. First, I want to sketch for you the background where these verses take place, and I want to show you the root of the problem that Jesus is addressing. Second, I want to see that the warning that Jesus gives doesn't just fall out of the sky. No, the warning he gives is aimed directly at the root of the problem. And third, and maybe most difficult, I want us to see the reason and the rationale behind what Jesus says. This morning, as we spend time in these difficult passages, I hope that we see this passage as every bit as sharp and harsh as you might think that it is. But for as brutal as this passage truly is, there is nothing in it that a believer in the Lord Jesus should fear. So if you have not yet, please turn with me to Mark chapter 3, starting in the 20th verse. It would be an understatement to say that Israel, as we see her today, is a rather complex situation. If you've turned on the news, there's a thousand things that are happening there. But the complexities that we see in Israel are nothing new. During the time of our gospel text, when Mark chapter 3 was written, there was already 2,000 years of history swirling around Israel. And as you would imagine, a faith this old, a religious structure this ancient, was, to put it mildly, complicated. But for all of its complexities, there were three main religious groups. You had the scribes, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees. And while there are nuances within each group that distinguish them from each other, the principal thing I want to focus on today about these groups is that they were all constantly at odds with Jesus. Even people who were just slightly familiar with the gospel story know that it was these three religious groups that argued with and opposed Jesus every chance they got. They constantly sought out Jesus and followed after him relentlessly. They were following after him because they wanted they weren't following after him because they wanted to learn from him. No. They followed Jesus day and night because their goal was to shut him up. They followed him in order to catch him. They followed him in order to gather evidence for his arrest and for his execution. They weren't following him because they believed him to be God in the flesh. No, they followed him because they actually believed that he was possessed by the devil. Look in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now guys, could you be more wrong than the scribes are here? 
Can, can you think of anything more outrageous than looking the second person of the Trinity in his eyes and telling that him that he is possessed by the devil? As far as I'm concerned, this is the very definition of as wrong as you can be. But how could the scribes be so wrong about Jesus? Where did the tension between them come from? How did the animosity towards Jesus get to such a heightened state? How could the religious leaders of Israel look at the God of Israel and call him the devil? Well, believe it or not, the escalation of tensions happened really fast in Mark. Just a quick recap of the interactions leading up to Mark chapter 3. In Mark 1, you have almost nothing negative between Jesus and the religious class. Almost nothing at all is said. Jesus heals people. He's casting out demons. His name and his reputation are spreading all throughout chapter 1. But you have no conflict between Jesus and the scribes, the Pharisees, or the Sadducees. But by chapter 2, the conflict begins. You know the story. Four men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And Mark says that when Jesus saw their faith, he looked at the paralyzed man and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And if you have your Bibles open, look at the response of the scribes, starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 6. It reads, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Guys, are the scribes wrong when they say, Who can forgive sins but God alone? No. The scribes are exactly right. Only God can forgive sins. At this point, the scribes might seem a little shocked by what Jesus has said, but they don't really seem angry with Jesus. And let's cut them just a little bit of slack. I mean, it's not every day that you're at some guy's house and then a carpenter from some small town walks in and starts forgiving sins. They have just a little bit of room to be confused. But Jesus discerns in their hearts an unspoken disbelief. He addresses their unbelief with a miracle that they cannot deny. Before their very eyes, Jesus heals the man whom everyone knew was paralyzed. Jesus proves to the scribes that his claim to forgive sins aren't just words. It's real. Jesus shows them that he has the authority to forgive only that which God can forgive by healing that which only God could heal. And we have no record of how the, the scribes respond exactly. But it doesn't appear that their reaction was belief. Later in chapter 2, Jesus has a run-in with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. The Pharisees are very upset that Jesus' disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus won't tell them to stop. Now this was the biggest escalation in tension so far. Some of the most powerful religious figures in all of Israel had just commanded Jesus to do something on religious grounds. And Jesus refused to comply, citing his own religious reasons. And this interaction set the stage for the fireworks that we have in Mark chapter 3. Look starting in Mark 3 verse 1. It reads, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And Jesus said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. 
And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand, and it was restored. Now look in verse 6. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Just a few verses after this, you see the religious elite of Israel attempt to do that very thing. The beginning of our gospel text shows the first major attempt to discredit and to destroy Jesus. And look at the angle they take against Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verse 22, right at the beginning of our gospel text. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. The tension that lay at the bottom of our gospel text is found in this exact accusation made by the scribes. The religious elite of Israel are looking God himself in the eyes and are calling him the devil. They are looking the spirit-filled works of Jesus, works of healing and of restoration, of forgiveness and peacemaking, and they command him to stop doing such things on the basis of their religious reasons. The tension of our gospel text is pulled tight between two mutually exclusive views. On the one hand, the religious elite of Israel called Jesus a blasphemous demon of hell, and on the other hand, Jesus calls himself the son of the living God. Jesus claims to have authority as God to forgive and restore, and the religious elite say his forgiveness and restoration are themselves blasphemy. And whatever Jesus has comes from the devil, not from God. This is the palpable tension that undergirds our gospel and is the exact context you must remember in order to understand what happens next. After the scribes accused Jesus of being an agent of the devil, Jesus totally dismantles their argument by stating the obvious. Why would the devil grant Jesus the power to cast the devil out? What sense does it make for the devil to fight against himself? Of course, it makes no sense at all to say something like that. The implication then is that Jesus and his works are not of the devil and the scribes are wrong. But the scribes aren't just factually wrong. Their error isn't like taking a wrong turn or or making some sort of spelling mistake. No, the scribes are wrong about the very bedrock and foundation of all reality. Jesus is not the devil. Jesus is God. And if the scribes think that Jesus and his work are evil, if they think that Jesus and his works are from the pit of hell and to be avoided and condemned at all costs, then they are seeing the world upside down and backwards. They see the world exactly opposite of how it truly is. This is what Jesus addresses in those bone-chilling verses when he speaks of an unforgivable sin. He's addressing a view that sees him and his works as evil incarnate. Look at verse 28. It reads, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. The tension of our gospel text is found in the accusation of the scribes, an accusation that said Jesus is possessed by the devil and an agent of evil. And then we see the warning that's given by Jesus. A warning that says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. Now, maybe I'm not smart enough, but it's not immediately obvious to me how those two things go together. I mean, 
The scribes said that Jesus was the one possessed by Beelzebub, right? They said that Jesus was the one who cast out demons by the prince of demons, right? The scribes were looking at Jesus and calling him the devil. The scribes accused Jesus of blasphemy, right? So why in the world does Jesus respond to the scribes by bringing up the Holy Spirit? I thought we were talking about the Pharisees, the scribes, and Jesus, about whether Jesus was God or not. So where in the world does this Holy Spirit business come from? Well, look in verse 30. What's it say? For they were saying he had an unclean what? Spirit. I think verse 30 sheds light on every single thing Jesus was saying to the scribes, and it gives us a template to understand one of the hardest verses in the whole Bible. Here's what I think the unforgivable sin is and isn't. The unforgivable sin isn't about committing so many sins that God finally gets fed up and refuses to forgive you. It's not about committing an individual sin so nasty and detestable that God refuses to forgive it. No, remember Jesus said, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. God's capacity to forgive our sinfulness is far greater than our ability to be sinful. So the unforgivable sin isn't about the amount or the severity of your sins. It's not about that at all. So what's it about? Well, we know what the unforgivable sin is. The unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, calling the works of the Spirit of God the works of the devil. So we know what the unforgivable sin is. But we don't know why it's unforgivable. Well, here's why blaspheming the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. Remember back just a couple of weeks at Pentecost. Remember we said that Pentecost is when all that Jesus has, all that Jesus won, all that belongs to him is given to us by the Spirit. What is his is now yours. What is yours is his. Jesus takes our sin, our shame, our, shame, our self-centeredness, our conceit, and he offers to take even our very death and make them all his own. And what he offers you in return is forgiveness and life everlasting. By the Spirit, Pentecost is when Jesus offers you himself. It is only by the Spirit that the life of God is offered to us. It's only by the Spirit that we receive the redeeming life and forgiveness of Jesus. It's only in receiving Jesus that you receive the Father. And so if you look at the Spirit, the only one through whom the life of the triune God is offered, and you blaspheme the Spirit by calling the Spirit himself evil, then you cut yourself off from the only one through whom the life of God is offered. If you reject the Spirit, then you reject the only way of receiving the Son. If you do not receive the Son, then you have not received his Father. In rejecting the Spirit as evil, you reject your only hope for life. Once you declare that the only remaining bottle in the world is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. Jesus is warning the scribes about this very thing. He's warning them against looking at the work of the Spirit and declaring it to be the devil's doing. Jesus warns them that if you reject the Spirit of God, it's not just that you won't be forgiven, but that you can't be. 
If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you cut yourself off from the very channel along which forgiveness comes. It is the person of the Spirit which convicts you of sin and calls you to repentance. It's the person of the Spirit that brings us a second birth. It's only by the Spirit that the reconciliation to God made by Jesus Christ is offered to you. And if we reject the Spirit as a demon of hell, if we reject all of the goodness found in Christ as being evil, then we are no different than those blind dwarves sitting in a circle forever rejecting all that Aslan seeks to give them. Like the dwarves, we would find ourselves in a perpetual state of darkness and death, not because God refuses to forgive our sins, but because we refuse to call them sin, and we refuse to call him God. And yes, that is unforgivable, but not because God withholds forgiveness from you, but because you withhold yourself from him. My prayer for us this morning is that our hearts, that the hearts of Christ's church remain ever tender to the Lord. If he's calling us, follow him. If he's convicting you of some sin in your life, repent. If the Lord is speaking to you, then listen. If you follow, if you respond to the Lord, then there is no sin that he cannot forgive you of. In responding to him in his forgiveness by receiving his life, we find that his grace and his peace are inexhaustible and his mercies are new to us every single day. I pray forever this prayer that we always are ready to confess our sins. Not that we have to walk around perfect, not that you have to be afraid that God's gonna throw some sort of trap in front of you that you fall in and now you're in hell forever. That's not what this is about. This is about if you hear the Spirit convicting you of something in your life, will you repent or will you tell the Spirit no? I pray that we repent. Amen.